Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, But perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999. I'm your host, Phil Iscove. And with me today to talk about episode, I believe it's 109, uh, Enemies, is Jamie Rosengard. Eight? Is it eight? You're right, it's eight. Fuck, it's eight. 108, yeah. Uh, Jamie Rosengard, writer, producer from uh, Short on Empire, Dare Me, Truth Be Told, and currently is on The Last Thing He Told Me for Apple, starring everyone's favorite America sweetheart, uh, Julia Roberts. Uh, produced by America's other sweetheart, Reese Witherspoon. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for being here, Jamie. 
Thank you. I like that you mentioned things that they're like, you know, these rom-com sweethearts and it's a really intense thriller. So I'm sure. I'm sure. We I'm just sure want to mess with everyone's emotions. Of course, of course. <laughs> That's, I mean, yeah. Um, so uh, I got I want to rewind a little bit back to 1999 and how the West Wing came into your life. If you watched it around then and, and how you feel it holds up uh, today. Uh, well, this is so exciting for me. The West Wing is, I think, like almost all working TV writers, the West Wing was formative to why I became a TV writer or even knew that it was a job or an identity <laughs> that you could have because Aaron Sorkin just so permeated every yeah. aspect of the show. But the West Wing first came into my life because my dad and I were huge sports night fans. So sure. I would watch that show every week on ABC. And even though it was not perfect and it went through this kind of rocky transition where I think they were trying to make it into like a studio multicam and then yep. finally gave up on that like live audience. Um, I was just fascinated by the characters and the way that they spoke and the way all the storylines seemed to collide together at sure. like the most opportune moments in a way that you could kind of feel the hand of the writer, but in a way that was so impressive that you didn't mind feeling that somebody was orchestrating things. So when I think I was in eighth grade, when the West Wing debuted, but it was this momentous occasion that the person who did sports night was kind of moving on to something bigger and in an expanded format with bigger names and all of that. Um, but yeah, I watched it weekly right from the beginning. And my dad and I were such big fans that at the time he had like some loose connection to getting copies of the show. So if we ever oh, wow. missed it, he'd come home with like actual like video cassettes of it. For, sure, sure. And I would like spent the whole summer between seasons one and two rewatching it. So I mean, that's yeah. that's pretty. Yeah. I mean, I think that. Uh, you know, a fair amount of guests and myself included, I didn't watch it when it first premiered. I caught up, I think, I want to say that I started watching it live from season three. So like three mm -hmm. and four I watched live, but one and two I watched the box sets and those came out sometimes, you know, years after, yeah. uh, you know, it was a whole thing. You know, those box sets were sort of the the OG DVR in the sense of people being able to catch up on some shows. Um, you know, shows like 24 and Alias and shows that were sort of like intricately, deeply serialized um, survived because of box sets and people catching up on those shows. So yeah, I associate Buffy with that as well. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. And yeah. I think the West Wing was the first time I ever like actually watched all the special features on a box set. Like I distinctly mm -hmm. remember those commentaries <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. all of those like really nerdy details, but I may be confusing it because the other show I did that with was Laguna Beach. So much less highbrow. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Slightly less highbrow. I was like, how do they do this? <laughs> how do they do this? And then, of course, I was like, oh, it's all that's how. <laughs> that's how. That's how. It's uh, it's sculpted is what they call it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, so this particular episode, um, I want to give a brief synopsis just for our, for our listeners. Uh, a crucial banking bill is at risk when uh, political rivals of environmentally sensitive President Bartlett attach a land use rider to it that would allow strip mining some of the Montana wilderness. CJ attempts to stamp out rumors that the chief executive chastised the vice president during a cabinet meeting. An overworked Leo isn't too keen on his 
independent daughter Mallory dating the handsome Sam Seaborn. CJ continues to fend off the romantic charms of a perceptive reporter, played by Timothy Busfield, obviously Danny Kincannon, with the knack with a knack for sniffing out juicy stories. And former lovers Mandy and Josh clash over the administration's attempt to jettison the land use rider that might also ruin the passage of the most important banking bill. Enemies aired on November seventeenth, nineteen ninety nine. It was written by or a story by Rick Cleveland, Lawrence O'Donnell, and Patrick Cadell. Teleplay by Ron Osborne and Jeff Reno, and directed by Alan Taylor. So I want to talk about this because you work in TV, so you know how this goes. I was so str- I'm so glad you're bringing this up because yes. it was the first thing I noticed. I think yes. it's also the only episode in season one that Aaron Sorkin mm-hmm. doesn't have any credit on. Correct. Yes, but five writers getting some type of credit <laughs> on one episode is a. It's a thing. It's a thing. So (laughs) I I, I want to unpack this for our listeners. It's a little inside baseball, but I want to kind of explain the process a little bit. First and foremost, perhaps, there are three episodes of The West Wing within the first four seasons that Aaron Sorkin does not have a soul, does not have any writing credit on. It's this one and then Swiss Diplomacy and The Long Goodbye, both in season four when I think by all accounts he was on his way out of the show. So there's that. Um, so this, I want to read one other quick thing here. So Dooley Hill was interviewed uh, around the time of, I think it was maybe second season, third season. And he was asked, I know that Aaron sometimes gets backed up between the shows. What's the longest time you've had to wait for a script? And then Dooley Hill said, the same day. We actually had one episode where we never got a complete script until after the taping was over. The actual show came out pretty good, though. It was the episode where Rob's character had to write a birthday greeting for the president and to the assistant of agricultural uh, agriculture secretary. For me, the episode was fun. It was different. So this episode is clearly... First of all, it should also be said there was a two-week gap between this episode and the the previous episode. So, like, they were clearly up against it, and I guess there just wasn't a script, and thus you have five people writing this script. Um, Pretty crazy. You Listen, I, I worked on Empire for six years. <laughs> nothing nothing can surprise me. So, like, sure. bless them sure. all. Whatever mm-hmm. it took, they got something amazing on right. screen. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's fascinating because I think if you didn't know that and if you weren't paying attention to the credits, mm-hmm. I think it all comes together in a pretty remarkable totally. way. And yes. I think what you tend to see usually in a case like that where it's just kind of being piecemeal or group written or things like that is that you'll have a lot more standalone elements or the storylines will not really speak mm-hmm. to each other in any meaningful way. And in classic Sorkin fashion, they seem to all intersect by the end of it in a really meaningful way. So that's incredibly impressive to me that they were able to kind of, I don't, I don't even know what word to Pull say. Pull it out like of their backflip, ass, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> backflip their way into making it make sense. Yeah, I mean, it's having, you know, having worked on, on broadcast television shows, you have as well, it's a different beast than working in cable or streaming currently. Uh, you know, it's just you keep feeding this monster scripts and then you get a hiatus, hopefully. Like, that's really kind of the way that it works. Once yeah. production starts, there just isn't breathing room, which is something that Aaron Sorkin, you know, learned the hard way um, and needed, let's just say, extracurricular activities in order to continue doing, it seems. Uh, but, I, but I do think that what's interesting about this episode is that um, it still feels like an Aaron Sorkin episode. It still has that that patter, you know what I mean? The way that everybody talks. Um, it beautifully kind of comes back on itself 
the 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 opening comes you know literally full circle with the end, which we'll talk about when we get into it. Um, so I guess this basically what I'm saying is I didn't know that there was an episode he didn't write prior to season four until right. doing this episode, and was pleasantly surprised that you kind of wouldn't know he didn't have his uh, fingers in it. Absolutely. And the one other point I wanted to raise about the writers Mm -hmm. that are credited is that one of them is Rick Cleveland, who long before I had any aspirations of working in TV, I was a huge fan of the website Television Without Pity. Mm -hmm. And I tried to read their old recap um, for this episode, but the archives are completely gone, which is such a loss to historians. Like that website was so integral to me understanding television. But I so remember the forums at that time were kind of ablaze with the fact that Aaron Sorkin and Rick Cleveland had a huge public feud over, I think that Rick had, was credited on one of the Emmy winning episodes. Sorkin didn't let him speak. And then later said that he had nothing to do with it. um, And then later had to apologize for it. So it's kind of interesting to see, to wonder what his role would have been in. I don't know. In a, just in a future, back yeah, yeah. I mean, Rick Cleveland is is a writer. Um, I don't know him personally, obviously, but uh, I well, I don't want to say obviously, but I don't know him personally. But uh, wrote on Six Feet Under, which is my favorite show. He wrote on that. Uh, he had several okay. episodes of that show that I love. Um, I know that for uh, um, the Christmas episode uh, in Excelsius Deo, which one of the all time greats, a great episode, um, which did win, as you said, the first writing Emmy for the West Wing. Um, I don't know the, as I'm sure you don't either, in terms of what the drama was within the writer's room. And I can only assume there was arbitration involved. Otherwise, Rick's name just flatly wouldn't be on the script. Right. Um, so it's uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, it seems very dramatic. Um, and, and, uh, and, and I would imagine that, quite frankly, I would imagine that the, 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 it seems the shooting and the writing of this episode seems pretty dramatic. Um, yeah. It, it's... Uh, it is interesting, and 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 as we get into the the the, um, the finer points of the episode, I will say that there's stuff about it that does feel a little hinky. We'll just say, <laughs> um, so we can we'll, we'll get into that. Um, tonally, there's some stuff in there. Uh, specifically, the score is just so jaunty and like yeah. cutesy at times, and I was just like, "What are we doing here?" Yeah, um, it's and, a and, and, and yeah. It's a little twee, and the relationship, and, and the and the the Mallory Sam stuff is super cute, maybe too cute for its own good, and a little bit sort of outside. Particularly of coming off of, I believe, last episode, Sam had his like a very dramatic moment with Lori, mm-hmm. and there seems to be no continuity to yeah. to that with his attitude toward Mallory. Correct. I would. I, I mean, so this is actually a good time to ask you this question. It does not play into this episode, thankfully, but what are your thoughts on the Lori storyline? I think that <laughs> I would love to see that storyline now and how sure. they would talk about it in a much yes. more complex way. I think it was, especially for Sorkin, who I don't consider, who I love and credit mm-hmm. so much of me even knowing what TV writing is to. Um, he's not the edgiest writer, Um, and so it was kind of a big swing for him to head into that direction. And I think there was a lot of potential that nobody involved actually wanted to really get into the nitty gritty of. 
Yeah, that feels right. It feels very networky too in the way that yeah. it's executed. And and you know, we've talked about this in previous episodes a little bit, but you know, Rob Lowe pushed back on the storyline because Rob Lowe has you know some sex scandals in his own uh, in his life that he didn't really want to sort of be folding into this character. Um, I don't think it does any anything really good for Sam's character. On the flip side, I'm curious, you know, on the Mallory side of things, um, you know, what are your feelings about that? I liked Lori as a character much more than Mallory. Mallory was a miss for me. And maybe it's just because, you know, I understand coincidences need to exist in television. That one, the idea that Sam would not know who Leo's daughter was is so hard for me to get over. So their relationship was always like very fundamentally flawed to me. Um, I don't know. I, I don't, I never really understood their dynamic. And I think, probably that's borne out by the fact that she really does disappear. Like she'll come back for one or two episodes and she's part of one of my favorite episodes, Galileo. But Mm -hmm. she, you know, I think her function was best served in terms of, of Leo and the divorce. Like that spoke to me in a much more powerful way than any romantic inclination with Sam. I feel like she was almost a remnant of the fact that like, they tried to, in, in getting Rob Lowe to sign on, make it seem to him as though Sam Seaborn was going to be the main character. And sure. therefore, he was required to have multiple love interests and much more of an outside life um, outside of the White House. And I feel like the show quickly found that he was almost like the fourth lead at best. Um, so I feel like these storylines never really fully actualized. Yeah, I mean, I I, I could... I, I pretty much agree with everything you're saying. The only the only thing I would say is that I do think that Allison Allison Smith, who plays Mallory, um, and Rob Lowe have great chemistry. Like I do yeah. think that they play well off of each other. Um, I fully agree with you that in the pilot, when he sort of absentmindedly admits to sleeping with a prostitute to his <laughs> boss's daughter, it's just I mean, it obviously defies, you know, believability. But then on top of it, it's also like I understand Mallory has a crush on Sam. Rob is a very attractive man. He's very charming and all of that. But if yeah. the first interaction you had with this man was him admitting to having sex with a call girl, it might taint the way that you see this person, even if it was by mistake. Um, all of that being said, there's a version in my brain where the Mallory-Sam relationship is allowed to breathe a little bit more and it's allowed mm-hmm. to at least come to some sort of a natural conclusion because it never really does that. She sort of pops right. up here and there. They kind of like make, you know, bedroom eyes at each other and winky faces and then she leaves and it never really goes anywhere. I would say similarly, it almost felt like had they been able to get Emily Proctor to sign on as a as a series regular, there's a world where I could see Ainsley Hayes and Sam Seaborn having some sort of a relationship as well, because they had tremendous chemistry. And um, Absolutely. I felt that chemistry right away between them. I also feel like at this stage in the show, they were still, I, you almost feel the network itis of being afraid of keeping sure. the show too much in the West Wing and, yeah. um, you know, feeling this need to graft on stories about their personal lives, including, you know, Josh and Mandy's history. Yeah. Um, things like that. And I think what the show proved very quickly is that nobody cared. Like they just loved the logistics <laughs> yeah, of what was yeah. going on in the White House and all of these, this world that we had no idea of that at, at one 
on one hand, like was actually very similar to every other mm-hmm. workplace. And you see that in the teaser of this episode with just the boss droning on and on. Um, but then on the other was like this, you know, this world into this power system that's previously seemed so unattainable. So I think there are a correction happens over the course of the season where they become less afraid of just leaning into the magic of being in the actual West Wing. I, I completely agree. I mean, I think that, you know, having discussed some of the developmental issues that might have existed with this particular episode, we'll sort of hone in on on some of the things that feel very West Wing and some things that maybe just feel like placeholdery that just kind of got shot to some degree yeah. or another. Um, so I, I think that that's definitely a part of it. I think that it's also interesting as well that um, this episode taps into the, the C.J. Hoynes thing, um, mm. which... Uh, so... The CJ storyline in this episode essentially is that uh, Bartlett holds a cabinet meeting that he's late to and Hoynes gets there before him and Hoynes is just kind of just shooting the shit and just kind of like prepping before the president gets there. Uh, and then Bartlett shows up and essentially kind of smacks him around. It's really the, it's very not Bartlett, in my opinion, the way he acts in that scene. I don't know how you feel, but he kind of, he basically dresses Hoynes down and has right. the woman that writes the minutes read back to him the things that Hoyne said and kind of smacks him around a bit. Um, and Danny Cannon gets wind of this and it becomes a whole thing and CJ has to put out the fire and all of that. In the process, she crosses paths with Hoynes and Hoynes kind of puts her in her place as well and says, uh, whatever regard you may hold for me personally, you are addressing the office of the vice president, which is then kind of tied into a season five episode where we find well- out that... Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because rewatching it, of course, my mind was like, oh, what great, you know, setup. But I actually think that in the moment, it's probably just referring to what we've already seen in season one, which is that Mm -hmm. like Hoynes um, dismisses CJ in a pretty embarrassing and disrespectful way that then Leo has to, you know, dress him down for. But I did think right away that CJ and Hoynes had interesting chemistry. So that almost feels like just, you know, great TV organic development, which is just that Mm -hmm. these characters had interesting chemistry in the moment and something that we shot. So why not find a way to work it in later? But it it, didn't seem planned to me at all, I guess. I (laughs) absolutely 100% agree with you. To me, it feels like... You know, between uh, season four and five, Aaron Sorkin leaves the show. John Wells takes over the show. Um, a fair amount of staff, writing staff, leave. New staff is brought on. Including feels- my current boss, Josh Singer. Oh, Oscar-winning awesome. Josh first. Singer for Spotlight is now. Um, Indeed. He was there for the final three seasons. So I've been annoying him constantly with questions about it. <laughs> He's an... Uh, uh, we've had I had Liz Hanna on for a previous episode. They obviously wrote the oh, post the together. Post. Yeah. So um, uh, we were able to to talk about uh, Josh then as well. Um, yeah. No. Exactly. So there's there's sort of this like it feels to me like someone one of the writers someone rewatched the series flagged this went into yep. the writers room was like we could do something with this and they're like yeah yeah they uh, they hooked up and you're like all right I'm not I'm not <laughs> sure that I necessarily needed them to have hooked up but I, I mean I appreciate that. Um, that they mind that chemistry that you're talking about, which does feel very, very uh, prevalent. Like you can sense yeah. that there's something, there could be something there if you wanted to find something there. Um, but I, but I do think that that, that overall this episode's. So we'll just kind of jump in. The episode opens yes. essentially with Bartlett in the Oval Office late at night talking to Josh about 
the national parks. <laughs> and I mean, this is also um, Bradley Whitford has tremendous comedic timing. Um, I love the way that he delivers a joke. Um, and this scene is so perfect because he calls like the he basically says the president, "You're quite a nerd, sir." And then he asks him about a national park, and Josh says, "It's as good a place as any to dump your body." <laughs> It's so good. And I think this is one of the early episodes where it was clear that Bradley Whitford was the breakout and that people cared so much more about Josh Lyman than they did about Sam. Um, Like, sorry. No, it's true. (laughs) But, you know, it was interesting to rewatch this because in the moment when I was watching the West Wing live, Josh was my favorite character. And now I think... Some of that stuff grates that Interesting. You know, nerdy machismo is not as well received, perhaps. No, I hear that. You know, and that actually leads into a question that I've that I've sort of asked most of my guests. And I'm very curious as to your thoughts, because I do think that Josh uh, Josh has sort of a Chandler vibe from Friends. Mm, yes. Right? Which was like Chandler was the breakout star. He was the snarky one. He always had a quippy line. He was always very funny. And I've been I've been rewatching Friends actually just by happenstance. And I actually find Chandler kind of the most annoying now. Um yeah. I, I think that I, I think Phoebe and very I, there are many other characters that I find funnier than than him. No offense to Matthew Perry. But there <laughs> is kind of a bit of a Chandler vibe to Josh on this show a little bit in that he's always got a wise crack. He always has a joke. Um, you know, and he's always like putting on his sunglasses because he thinks he's real cool and he's not. <laughs> like all these kind of things. That I'll never of, recover yeah. from him like literally beating his chest when they get like the nomination and demanding all the finest moments all the bagels. in the land. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. It's insane. But I guess this, this leads to my question of what are your thoughts on the Josh and Donna dynamic? Because I do think that some people feel like 2021 lens of looking back on the power dynamic that exists between the two of them. Now, admittedly, they never hook up until they're on a relatively even playing field, which is, which is nice. But do you feel as though there is something awkward there now? It's strange because it is a little awkward or or uncomfortable in a different way. However, I do think it's true. You know, like I (laughs) think just right. Like it feels like something that would still happen and it feels very accurate to that time. So I'm trying not to, you know, judge it. I think, I think what grates on me almost more is the way that CJ is typically used. And it's not an issue in this episode, but the usage of CJ as the character who doesn't understand anything technical or anything um, to like policy wonk related in the whatever legislation they're trying to pass. That bothers me more almost than watching Donna evolve. And because I, I do feel like we got to see in real time, like both Donna and Janelle Maloney step into themselves. So mm-hmm. it felt true to me in a different way. I think that's, I think that's really apt. I, I think that, you know, Sorkin gets dinged a lot for his female characters, not necessarily for their intelligence per se, but for his sort of his girl Friday, they're falling down, tripping bantery kind of, structure that he tends to kind of foist upon his female characters. But to your point, I think that, uh, that Allison Janney specifically and Janelle Monet to, uh, Maloney to a Janelle Monet, Janelle Maloney to some extent. <laughs> I would watch uh, her. I'd watch her as Donna too, I guess. Uh, I'll say this. I do think that, uh, Allison Janney finds CJ's spine and the depth and what have you. And then that feels like Aaron runs with that more. Yeah. Um, so to your point, at this point in the series, 
even even just that little moment when uh, Mandy is talking to Toby, you know what I'm talking about, and 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 mm-hmm. and CJ's like, well, I don't know what she's talking about, but uh, she seems very passionate. But she's, you know what I mean, there's a lot right. of like CJ's kind of like, oh, just the dumb press secretary who just needs to know as much as she knows to talk to the press, which I don't love. I am assuming you feel the same way. I don't either, and I don't love that she the information that comes to her in this episode comes because she has a romantic flirtation with Danny. So that's not ideal for both of her moments. One to just be her, have her not be interested in like a massive piece of legislation for the, for Bartlett. And then two for her to have to rely on Danny steering her away from points and toward, um, Mm -hmm. toward the, Oh my God, what is her name? (laughs) <laughs> what? Mandy? The stenographer. Oh, the stenographer. Um, oh, yeah. Yes. No, it's like, yes, I can't remember her name, unfortunately. But I know what you're talking about. I, yeah. I think that it's, it also, this also brings me to the, the Danny Kincannon stuff, which, you know, up until recently, I've watched the show many times. I know you have as well, right? And I always thought that it was cute. I always thought that, da- and, and I think Timothy Busfield sells it. But on the page, Danny can't take no for an answer, and it's not cool. <laughs> It's not. And again, I try to be forgiving because the fishbowl with the the goldfish with the little podium is the cutest thing. It remains the gold (laughs) standard for any romantic overture. Like more people should do it, except I don't want to have to keep a goldfish alive. Um, (laughs) um, It's tough. It's a tough watch here for him to really constantly be going at her, especially after, you know, she puts her foot down fairly firmly in their first scene where he's trying to ask her out and you think that he's gotten the hint and then only for in their very next scene together at a moment where she's really trying to do her job for him to try to ask her out again in a different way and it's just you know it's tiresome it's been tiresome for a long time you know shows as recently as Brooklyn Nine-Nine in that whole first season they kind of had a similar problem where one character was constantly asking out another and then it seems like the showrunners you know were able to modulate. I just was at the New Beverly last night seeing New York, New York for the first time. Sure. And the entire introduction of how Robert De Niro meets Liza Minnelli is him just bullying and like fully harassing her yeah. into going yeah. out with him. And I think we're supposed to find it charming, but that falls really flat now. It was a different time, Jamie. It was a time <laughs> when you could just berate women into going out with you, and, and it yes, worked. Just wear them down. Uh, yeah, wear them down, and they're like, fine. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think that it's it's kind of a dual prong thing. It's first and foremost, you know, uh, when a person, man or woman, that you are interested in says no, uh, you should just take that as at face value. And then on top of it, you have the professionalism angle where you right. have like CJ's like the fucking press secretary for the white house. And you're a reporter. Like you should just know better that if it's going to happen, it'll happen organically and all, whatever. All that being said, uh, it, it, it somehow still sort of works because they're Allison so Jenny and, yeah. and, uh, and Timothy Busfield are so, so charming. And I do I almost think there was a conscious attempt in this episode, Mal, with the contrast between Danny and CJ and then Mallory and Sam. Mallory yes. is much more forceful on that end. So it seems yes. like they tried to indicate that have a female character who is, you know, very brash, is really going for things, is assuring him there won't be sex for him at the end of the evening, like, Mm -hmm. who can kind of play the same role. So I think that's how they attempted to balance it out. Um, And it didn't bother me in the moment when I was watching it in as a 
seventh grader, but maybe that's had <laughs> profound damaging lasting <laughs> as an adult. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I think that it's. I mean, I just I think it's very interesting the way that this show handles the romantic romantic entanglements versus the other massive John Wells hit at the time, which was ER. Mm. And you know, ER is a very different show. They're they're show run by different people. They're it's just a completely different animal for all intents and purposes. Um, they're both produced by the same person, um, but because of that show, sort of going all in on romantic relationships between certain pairings. This show, it just feels like Sorkin's just not interested in that. Like, it's just, right. it's, it's not, what he's interested in is preamble. He just loves, like, flirting. He's, it's like, it's all foreplay for him. He has no interest in actual sex. So it's yeah. just like, and that that's, I mean, listen, that's fine. But what it can lead to is situations like we're talking about here, where it's like, when when all it is is banter, um, the, 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 the power dynamics can be strange. And, and anyway, it is what it is. But, um... So then at this point, Leo has lunch with Mallory, his daughter, who we've mentioned. Uh, Congressman comes by to congratulate him about this banking bill. Leo gives Mallory his and Jenny, or basically her her mom and his opera tickets. And then uh, Bartlett tells CJ to talk about the passing of the banking bill during the press conference. You know things, this classic West Wing, you know things are going to go poorly when in the first act of the episode, someone's excited about something passing. Yeah, never be excited about anything. Just, it's a good life lesson. (laughs) It's a good life lesson. It also feels like on ER, um, never be the patient that everything is okay for in the first act. (laughs) Because you'll probably be dead by the end of the episode. But it, it, it feels like Bartlett's just really excited and CJ's like, great. And then we have this sort of cabinet meeting that we were talking about where they sort of get into um, into it, Bartlett and Hoynes. I, I want to just uh, unpack this a little bit because I'm not sure that I was clear earlier. Bartlett, I, I, he just, he's a real dick here. Like he's, he's never a dick. A dick. To the point you just made, he's actually supposed to be in a good mood at the top of the episode. So it's even more jarring because he's doing his like kind of professor uncle thing with Josh talking about yes. the national parks. He thinks everything is on track with this banking bill. And then we get into this cabinet meeting for, I think the first time that we've really seen it in action. Um, and he really just is relishing torturing Hoynes for no reason. And it doesn't seem to have come from anywhere and in any of the preceding scenes. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Yeah, it's, you know, this has come up in a couple uh, previous episodes as well. And obviously, you know this as well as anybody. But, you know, the first season of a television show, but at the very least, the first half of a, of a show, um, at least back in the day, and specifically with broadcast television, uh, you're really finding your sea legs, right? Like you're, st- you're still figuring out tone, you're still figuring out relationships. Um, and especially for a showrunner like Aaron Sorkin, who apparently plans nothing out, um, and is just kind of making it up as he goes along, um, you get situations like this that feel a little unfounded, a little bit, you know, they're just, they don't feel as they're motivated. Um, and we get a little bit of of sort of explanation at the end of the episode, which we'll get to. But I just think that it's it 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 doesn't feel like them. I don't know how else to explain it other than Bartlett's voice in that scene doesn't feel right, and Hoyne's voice in the later scene doesn't necessarily feel right. Right. I just I think it could have easily been solved with motivating, like if Hoynes had gotten. As opposed to Bartlett running late, if Hoynes had hijacked the meeting in a clearer way Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, or gotten there early to set the tone or had step overstepped in some way, you needed some other cudgel or reason why I think Bartlett would have acted out so intensely. Um, But yeah, it really feels very tonally strange. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong. And there are, there are definitely m- many moments in, later on in this season and in future seasons where I like when Bartlett gets petty and when he acts sure, out sure. and when you have that kind of colossal <laughs> intellect. I think it's mm-hmm. true that you'd like to use it sometimes to just really sure. stick it to people. But sure. it's so early on in the series and into this dynamic that it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's, you know, again, I, I you alluded to this earlier. Um, obviously, anyone who's listened to the previous episodes knows that the show was not about Bartlett. The show was supposed to originally be about Sam. So this Bartlett character, for lack of a better way of putting it, is really sort of manifesting, right? And they're right. figuring out the ins and outs of this character and what he believes in, what he doesn't, what his voice sounds like. Even in the previous episode, you have him telling, or maybe it's two episodes ago, where uh, Leo tells him about his divorce and he's like, you're the man, fix it. And you're like, what is what is this? Like this? Yeah. Is just, Although I will say like that that, yeah. that moment is the only reason I like the Mallory story in this episode because oh, sure, I think sure. Bartlett plays a role yeah. in kind of smoothing over that relationship between yes. Leo and his daughter. It kind mm-hmm. of softens totally what was a really unnecessarily abrasive moment earlier on. Correct. I, I agree with that as well. I, I think it's yeah. I, it's it's just and just to sort of uh, underline what Bartlett says in this cabinet meeting, he basically has the woman read back the minutes, and and essentially Hoyne said that their top priority is getting Congress to work with them. And Bartlett's like, I thought our top priority was to you know work for the American people, and they kind of get into this like Classic semantic Biden pissing. Warren. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Yeah, just a real pissing contest between. Uh, flashbacks to an overcrowded dnc stage (laughs) (laughs) a little bit a little bit it's definitely it's a little bit of sort of you know what's important what's really important um it it, it is interesting that that is what they get into a sparring situation about um but then i would also argue that that theme or that idea never really comes back thematically within the episode, right? Like you would have loved to have seen, and I guess within the banking bill, you have this argument about like environmentalism versus giving people more money in this banking bill. It's Right, but Mandy's the voice of that and nobody's listening to Mandy. So (laughs) there's not an efficient, an effective conduit for 
so then we get Toby and Sam. They're talking about their speech writing. They're convinced their writing is flat. Josh comes in and tells them about the banking bill, asks them if they're hearing anything about the banking bill having issues. Um, then there's the Danny CJ stuff. He asks her out. She says no, blah, blah, blah. Then you have a great moment where Hoynes is talking to the press and he says, this just in, the internet is not a fad. Uh, I always, I never knew there was a name for this. And then I think, and this is a very weird tangent, but when Aziz Ansari wrote his tribute to Harris Whittles after his passing, he talked a lot about Chuffa, which is like the moments in the scene that you just kind of walk in on before the scene starts. Mm -hmm. And this is such classic, just... (laughs) Bullshit, like some writer desperately trying to figure out what would Hoynes be doing before, <laughs> before the scene starts. And it's so bad. <laughs> it's so great. The internet is not a fad is my favorite uh, Hoynes thing. Uh, like that yeah. Hoynes is like the cool guy. Like he yeah, thinks he's yeah. really preaching. Like, totally. Didn't Al Gore say he invented the internet? Wasn't that funny? Oh, yeah. Of yeah. Course. So there you go. So. It, all kinda, it, all, it all talks to itself. But I do think that, um, so then Danny talks to Hoynes about the cabinet meeting, does stuff. Hoynes blows him off, blah, blah, blah. Mallory asks Sam to go to the opera with her. Um, so, okay. This is sort of where the rubber meets the road a little bit with the Mallory Sam stuff in this particular storyline where she says there will be no sex. He's like, great. I get to listen to Chinese opera um, and hang out with you. Um, And he seems into it kind of like, I don't know. Sam doesn't seem particularly at this point, all that interested in Mallory, but no. And again, it would have, that would have been an easy place to, I think, insert a line of dialogue about how he was, not to Mallory, but any reference to Lori and what he was yeah. going through. And maybe that's the reason why he is interested yeah. in going because he's just had this really awkward moment at the state dinner where he ran yeah. into Lori. So yeah. I think in the absence of anything connective like that, it just feels a little random. Yep. Uh, yep. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, this is also where the score really hit me hard. It's super jaunty <laughs> and cutesy and it's all just like, I don't know. I, I This is a tonal thing. And again, I think Alan Taylor is a tremendous director. Obviously, mm-hmm. one you know, wrote the, uh, directed the pilot of Mad Men, directed many episodes of The Sopranos, has many Emmys to his name, and is tremendously talented. Um, but I imagine that this was a tough episode to right. wrangle, it sounds like. So there's there's score doing heavy lifting when the show doesn't generally use score that heavy. It feels more Gilmore Girls than The West Wing. And I revere both, but they (laughs) don't necessarily meet. (laughs) Sure. Uh, So then CJ and Sam go to talk with Leo. CJ asks about the cabinet meeting. Sam tells Leo that Mallory asked him out to the opera. I love the that they stick around for John Spencer to say, I'm fine with this. To say to nobody, just telling it to himself (laughs) uh, is great. we talked about the Hoynes and CJ stuff, but I, I, I want to sort of talk about this. I guess we should talk about this banking bill from 30,000 feet for a second. In terms oh, of we're not going to spend this entire conversation talking about writer's block and how I still use birthday message as like a joke constantly. Just this weekend. I was that's using. fantastic. That is, <laughs> that's amazing. The best. Then Toby getting involved and like really, it's the best. Sam really it's wanting great. to nail it. I love yeah. it so much, but fine. I guess it's the wrong. No, no, we're going to get, we're going <laughs> to, don't you worry. We'll unpack all of that because I want to talk to you about that about as well. <laughs> but uh, we'll just talk very, very briefly about this banking bill, which essentially is close to being passed. And then 
There's a couple congressmen, I guess, that Broderick and Eaton, those notorious scamps. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, This show loves to just talk, to use names with authority that you've never heard of before. Like it just, anyway, but, um, so there's, but it's a good lesson in writing and that they don't explain anything and you don't need them to, you figure out what's going on well enough immediately. I think Aaron Sorkin is a master of just figuring out a couple of key words or a key Mm -hmm. concept in something that you can grasp onto really well and just keep it moving. Uh, totally. It, even just the way that, to your point, like the way people say the names Broderick and Eaton, it was such disdain as like, these guys don't stand for anything. Like why all of a sudden have they started doing this? Yeah. Um, tells you everything you need to know about these characters. To your point, like the, 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 the specificity, but also the economy of words is, is really impressive. Um, but this banking bill they're trying to pass, these two guys have attached a land rider to it where they essentially could sort of uh, strip mine uh, a portion of Montana, some yep. big sky portion of Montana. Um, and it's holding up this bill. So now there's this question of, do they just say, fuck it and sign the bill anyway. And these guys just get to do whatever they want with this environmental thing, or do they push back and find a way to have their cake and eat it too is essentially what they're trying to do throughout this episode. Um, and Josh eventually figures out a, a, a fix, which we'll get to at the end. But at this point, um, the bill is sort of in jeopardy. CJ doesn't really know what to say about it. She's caught off guard when she's asked about it at a press conference. Um, and we get into sort of this, this Oval Office pissing contest, for lack of a better way of putting it, where like Toby and Josh think he should veto it. Right. And uh, Sam thinks he should sign it because it's for the American people, they could use the money in their pocket. And kind of strangely... You know, Sam takes the position of let's just do it and has kind of a cynical reason behind it, which Mm -hmm. I don't think is consistent with his character. And I do think a lot of characters pirouette quite a bit um, in their position throughout this episode. And it reminded me a lot of there's this sports night episode where Natalie is harassed by a football player and it's it's a really big interview for sports night and every character changes their mind like 40 different times on what (laughs) what they should be doing and like then there's like a really supposed to be big pivotal scene at the end of it and you're like wait what is your position exactly (laughs) you're like am i rooting for what you're saying or not (laughs) um Uh, yeah but yeah i think between sam flip-flops a bunch of times toby does as well um Mandy, you know, it's it's kind of hard to keep track of exactly what we're rooting for, I think. But in their ideal world, President Bartlett wants the bill to go through without making any concessions. Um, right. And that's the side we find Josh on as well, which is being very competitive and not want more so than wanting to get the bill passed. He doesn't want to lose. Yes, which is what Mandy sort of confronts him on and says, like, you're fighting for the wrong stuff. And, and I think that... I, I agree with you 100% that that it's a little unclear as to what everyone's stance is on this stuff. The only ones that we ju- we know Josh doesn't want to lose and we know that Mandy thinks that he's fighting for the wrong thing. Toby doesn't seem to really care. He's sort of like, whatever. Um, and Sam is also kind of taking an odd hill to die on in terms of this argument as well. Um, it's, it's not the, and again, this is maybe where the Sorkin not writing this episode comes into yeah. play. 
Sorkin's incredibly good at delineating information. Um, mm. You know, he has a whole army of, of researchers that give him all the information that he needs to know so his characters can sound really smart. And then he understands how to make it sound in a way that our brains can process it. And this is a little bumpier. Like you, you feel a little bit of like, wait, what am I supposed to be invested in? Right. And I don't think they do a great job of explaining the banking bill compared to other issues we've seen before. I think we've already had the gun, Mm -hmm. um, the gun lobbying episode later on, there's an episode about the census. And I think they do a much better job in those episodes, creating an emotional understanding of why we want, why it's important for us that this thing pass. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, I, you know, here, here it seems, yeah, here we're so maybe because they're trying to direct our attention more so to the land rider aspect. And that's supposed to be where our emotional connection is. I don't think it ever really comes through exactly why this particular thing is important. Yeah. I, it's, it's funny you say that because um, with the, the census episode, which is Mr. Willis of Ohio, um, you know, Allison Janney was talking to the press around that time and saying how effective that episode is at actually explaining what the census is to the American people, you know, and how this show, you know, in its best form is a show that can teach people about the various things that are going on within the White House. This episode doesn't do a particularly good job of that, unfortunately. Um, so then Charlie tells Leo that someone has to write a birthday card for the president. <laughs> for a kid to the secretary or it's a 50th birthday, I believe it's 50th, it's, birthday. Yeah, 50th birthday, not a kid. Sorry. Um, and Leo decides to give it to Sam to throw a wrench in his date with Mallory, um, which is kind of great. Uh, but again, I love petty drama. So I'm all in on this. <laughs> who doesn't love petty drama? Um, yeah, no, it's very petty. Um, but it's also um, what's kind of great about it. There's a, there's a couple of things that are great about it. First of all, to your point, the petty drama of it all, but also, it seems like the type of thing that Sam would really sink his teeth into and and blow out of proportion and make it seem as though it's a thing that he has to do a really good job at. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And I do think they did a, a fun job of just setting up that both Sam and Toby are feeling like their writing is flat, which I think anyone can really relate yes. to feeling yes. like you've lost it temporarily. Mm-hmm. And just the way that Toby needles Sam about how, mm-hmm. you know, Sam's fine because he has a lower ceiling for what he's capable <laughs> of accomplishing. So it's just yeah. really beautifully set up for why this seemingly simple task is going to go horribly awry. For sure. And it and you know, as a writer watching this show, which is I wouldn't say is has a large portion about writing, right? It's about two communications uh, directors and them writing speeches all the time. So Sorkin definitely gets to fold in his neuroses as a writer into all of this as well. Um so when Sam takes the draft to Bartlett and Bartlett says, Yeah, bring me the next draft, like it gave me chills. <laughs> like it gave me like PTSD or was like, oh God. Like it's just he it's it's brutal. Oh, it's, it's classic great. like network notes call starting off. But there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of great stuff here. Yeah, totally. <laughs> there's nothing worse. If you're ever just to our listeners on a notes call and the first thing they say is there's a lot of good stuff here, just buckle up because there's not gonna be anything good coming. <laughs> My all-time favorite, I did not experience this, but my previous showrunner on Empire told us a story about how at the start of a notes call, he was like, they didn't even bother with the formalities. They just oh, said, well, let's take the let's take the brackets out on this one. <laughs> oh, God. That, whoa, God. <laughs> That's brutal. Um, yeah. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but uh, so then... Um, 
Yes. Okay. So then CJ talks to Mandy about getting Danny off of the Hoyne story. Mandy tells her to offer Danny 30 minutes with the president alone, which she does and kind of makes that go away. And the president's like, that's fine. But CJ then tells Bartlett that it wasn't Hoynes who leaked the information. It was the woman, the stenographer who did it. Um, which I, which leads to sort of Bartlett and Hoynes having kind of this heated conversation, I guess. Um, we'll get to that in one second, but before we get there, um, oh, right. So Leo tells Mallory that he's done with her blaming him for the divorce. Mm-hmm. Mallory, then Bartlett comes in and he, and he regales Mallory with all the things that Leo has done that day to sort of show how busy and important he is. Yeah, it's tough because on one hand, I think it's a very sweet gesture given that the president has, we've seen a few instances of Leo being taken for granted up until this point and the president was so harsh on him about the divorce at all. So I think it's a nice moment between the two men to know that they're going to have each other's back. Mm -hmm. And I think it is a good reminder to Mallory that like, what as to the stakes of what Leo is dealing with. Sure. What I didn't like was that mm-hmm. Mallory then immediately backs down and is like, I'll make sure I'm not blaming you. She should like, she's allowed to blame him. And I think it's, yeah. I think that the mistake is not the tactic, but that they don't, that they tie it up too neatly at the end. This is something messy that could have continued to be messy or a little yeah. bit more real. I agree. And, and, and I guess I also just don't love, um, the optics of it, if I'm being completely honest, right. of, of two older men being like, we, you know, listen, lady, we do tough stuff here. And maybe it's, it's, there's, it's, there's like a patronizing component to it that I don't really love. Um, I, 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 it's saved a little bit by Bartlett saying, my point is give your dad a break. Um, right. and, and, and that it is two fathers trying to sort of come to each other's aid in a tricky situation with a daughter. Um, I'm not trying to be heartless about this, but I also feel as though there's just something about the way the whole scene plays out that just doesn't. No, it's icky. Out. And I think they try to give Mallory a bit of a point of view when she's like, you know, all due respect, what is your point? Um, but it's, it's still obviously one, it's, not really believable that somebody would ever speak that way to the president. And two, she then immediately crumbles to whatever yep. he's saying. Yep. So you lose any sense of individuality on her part. And also, you know, it's hard because obviously we've, how, how many scenes did Jenny even get to? If that. At most. Yep. And then I don't believe we've met Abby yet, right? Doctor, Doctor. We Bart. have, we met her oh, in the previous okay. episode. We met her oh, at the right. state dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But that, um, but that's so, your point. Yeah. is, and I wanted to bring this up as well, you know, obviously Stalker Channing is unbelievable as Abigail. Um, she is in so few episodes of this first season, but the impression she leaves in that state dinner episode does make you, like, it, you build an entire relationship for the two of them that lasts when she's not there until they right. always, they make her a series regular <laughs> in season two. But, but you know, like, there's this, it's... First of all, I'm not sure Bartlett should be giving marriage advice just for what it's worth. But then it's also <laughs> just like, because their marriage is, you know, not exactly, you know, always copacetic. But but it just, it's, I guess it's a little bit of, it's a generational thing. And I'm, I'm trying not to hold the show too accountable to it. Because I do think that Leo and, and, and Bartlett would be these kind of guys, if that makes sense. 
They would. And I don't even know if the show decided that he's the father of three daughters yet, but <laughs> you would think he'd be a little bit more adept at dealing with um, think, yeah. knowing how to speak to somebody like that. But I think it's, again, it's not great and it wouldn't pass muster now, but I think it is true to ho- who those characters were. Totally. Uh, then Mallory tries to fix the situation by taking Leo to Sam's office and saying all three of them should go to coffee together. Not sure why she thinks that this is a, a soul. Uh, <laughs> like, I mean, has she and Sam even got on an actual date no, yet? Like, no. why do they need to be intermingling like this? Let's all have some boundaries. <laughs> like, that's what on I think top- the thesis of the episode is. <laughs> I, I, like, could, I couldn't agree with you dad's more. Boss involved, who's also the president. Like, don't date your dad's subordinate. Like, there's just a lot of things here that could have gone differently. <laughs> I, I I totally agree with you, and part of it does feel. And again, like, I don't want to be too hard on this episode because it does feel as though this was not an easy one to make. So, like, all things considered, and we said this up top, like, we're just kind of getting into the weeds on this episode a little bit. But like, you know, from thirty thousand feet, this episode's fine. Like, it's still a West Wing episode. It's still really good. Oh yeah, I've seen it probably yeah. twenty times. We'll watch one. <laughs> right, like right. it's it's great. <laughs> but when you put it under a microscope, you see some stuff that obviously is is a little a little weird. And and in particular, you have this moment where Sam says, "No, you know what? I'm actually going to decline. I want to really, I want to nail this. I want to dig into this." <laughs> and she says, "You're so like him." And I'm just like. Does every woman have to have like daddy issues in an Aaron Sorkin thing too? This like, is-, is not the moment to do it. But if you ever want to spend an hour talking about that bench scene outside of the skating rink in Molly's game, With like, ghost dad? I, don't, I don't know if a scene, one scene has ever ruined a movie for me <laughs> to the extent that that one scene did. Like, yeah, it is rough. And she's just fully naming her daddy issues in this one. Like, she's just like, oh, I'll date someone who's just like my problematic father. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it's very strange. I'm not, I'm, I just don't even, it's, it's, it's so throwaway in this that, like, it almost makes it more offensive that it's so throwaway in a weird way. She's like, oh, you too. It's like, wait, <laughs> but what? Like you're okay with it's it's very strange. But all that being said, uh the storyline essentially resolves itself with Sam and Toby writing the birthday message together, as you said, and it's great. So like whatever. Yeah, I love Toby like needing to get in on it and wanting to take a pass at it. It's just it's <laughs> perfect. And I think like the truth of the matter is the Mallory stuff I think doesn't totally work. But I do think the story gives us more insight into both Leo and Sam. And at Mm -hmm. this point in a season, those are the series regulars. Those are the characters we care about more. And I think it is effective in kind of giving us more access to the way they think. For sure. For sure. It's, it's, I think it totally works. It's all very serviceable. Um, It's just when you kind of, you know, look under the hood, which I imagine this episode might not have had the time to do such things. (laughs) um, You might kind of be like, well, maybe can we, you know, modulate this? Can we massage this? What have you. Um, The episode then you get um, Hoynes coming to Bartlett and they really kind of get into it. Uh, There's this really interesting quote um, where uh, Aaron Sorkin modeled the relationship or the dynamic that Jack Kennedy had with Lyndon Johnson, which was that Johnson had a bit of an outsized ego and Kennedy had a group of intellectuals and they were just different. This is Tim Matheson saying this. Uh, Johnson didn't feel that he was being utilized enough. I think Hoynes feels the same way. He was the majority leader of the Senate and like all senators, he feels he could be president and should be president. Um, I I think that you know, when you hear it like that, you're like, sure, 
I, I, I can see that dynamic um, playing out the way that it plays out over the course of the series. In this particular episode, it feels a little dialed up in a way that feels a little unmotivated. Yeah, and it's a symptom, I think, also of their backstories not having been fully fleshed out yet. Because if you knew, for example, at this point about the MS of it all, that would add a really interesting layer to the scene that not only did Bartlett subjugate Hoynes, but he did so knowing that he is not really in a... Yeah, in a physical or vital enough position to have really done that. Um, You also don't even get the sense of, you know, it's even more insulting given what we learn later about Josh having worked for Hoynes. So that's another layer that I think would have, had it been in place already, would have kind of made the edge in this scene and make a little bit more sense. Um, So it's a little bit, the scene I think is really well written and really well acted, but it's missing, I think, some of the context that we'll eventually get later on. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. It, it feels as though they, and by they I mean uh, Martin Sheen and 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 Hoynes are sort of, you know, flying by the seat of their pants a little bit in terms of like what right. the backstory is for these two men. Um, I'm sure they've been told about the Kennedy Johnson stuff, and they sort of have mm-hmm. that rattling around in their heads. But um, you know, Bartlett tells Hoynes that he shouldn't have made him beg to be his vice president, um, which is interesting, a new piece of information that has certainly not been uh, revealed to us up until this point. Um, and when we do see that scene together, you know, after he's won and he tells him about the MS and how pissed Hoynes is about that. And, and Hoynes is, and I've said this uh, on an episode before, but Hoynes is such a skeleton key for this show. Like right. they, they twist him into so many pretzels to get this character to do what they need him to do in order to be sort of, and, and it it's a testament to Tim Matheson that it all kind of works out in the wash because he's so right. good. But like, you know, his affair that he's then kicked out of being the vice president so that, you know, when Zoe's kidnapped, like all these pieces have to- That happens you know. so quickly in life. Yes. And it, your, to your earlier comparison, I think Chandler does it, right? It <laughs> like, is Chandler. It is, it is Matthew Perry, yeah. Um, but, um, no, he's definitely yeah. used as a plot function to move things along. But I, just as a viewer at the time, when I saw Tim Matheson's name in the credits, I would get excited because I yep. felt like Coins added a really interesting- Mm-hmm. wrinkle to things um and he had his own relationship with a lot of these characters um which was always exciting to see it's also i i, I this just occurred to me um but whenever madison's credit appears it says as vice president hoynes like you oh, know so, yeah so it, it's it's very rare for a guest star to get the character name associated with them yeah especially <laughs> like no disrespect but yeah. Yeah, That's, I, yeah I, I know. I don't think it's, it's just, so when it showed up, I was. It, it does feel very sort of like, you know, it's got this authority with it, which I think right. is funny. Um, so then we have sort of this Mandy-Josh situation. Josh is determined to figure out how to beat the banking lobby. Donna tells Josh, this is an unfortunate coincidence. You spoke of coincidence earlier. But Donna shows up and is like, our computer system is so antiquated. And he's like, antiquated? And it's like this... <laughs> light bulb that goes off for him uh, and he realizes that they can use the Antiquities Act to uh, have Bartlett turn Big Sky into a national park so they they can't do the landmines or what they were going to do to it. 
which again comes full circle. You have this beautiful, really nice scene at the very end where Josh goes to the Oval Office as, a, as he was there at the beginning. And he gets to basically say, like, you get to make a national park and you're a big nerd and this should make you really happy. And it does. And Bartlett's very happy. And the episode ends on a sort of ominous note in an allusion to the title where Josh says, we talk a lot more about our enemies than we used to. Right. Um, which is interesting vague but interesting <laughs> I don't it's, it is interesting and it you know I don't know that it fully carries over in this season it feels like it's it's territory that gets mined much more especially in season two but I do think it fits the I, the idea of like the Clinton White House and some of that idealism and then how that starts to curdle mm-hmm. um and just re-watching it having thought more about like you know, John Favreau and Dan Pfeiffer and like all of those crooked media guys and how they were so, I think, like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and yeah. then watching that develop. It's, I think it is a natural part of every presidency, but it doesn't feel necessarily like they follow through on it right away. But it is like an interesting, I don't think of this as a show that did cliffhangers yeah. um, aside from, you know, finales. But it feels like on a different show, there was a way to make this more of a cliffhanger for future fights that were to come. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's you know, in, in Mr. Willis uh, of Ohio, um, you have that whole fight in the in the Georgetown bar um, with, with Zoe and you have, you know, Bartlett essentially sort of laying out for her the, the nightmare scenario um, nice. that, that is ultimately the end of season four. <laughs> but um, it, it definitely has that sort of, um, ominous people might be gunning for us, people might be coming for us kind of thing. Um, which again, you, know, you always want to leave an episode on a, on a feeling of like what could happen next. Um, right. It feels slightly unmotivated as far as I'm concerned because we're so far from the assassination attempt at the end of the season. Um, and the next episode ultimately is about <laughs> the Supreme Court. So like, I don't, I don't quite know what they were kind of ellipsing towards, but mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting nonetheless. But um, so uh, here we are at the end of the episode. And I want to ask you, what is your favorite episode? Do you have one? Do you have a couple? Do you have a few that you want to highlight for us? Well, I have a feeling that I feel like there are two categories of episodes that really get a lot of the, sure. a lot of the love or a disproportionate mm-hmm. amount of the love. And that's usually the premieres and finale is like, it's hard yes. to argue with, um, <laughs> you know, in the shadow of two gunmen or things like that. And then also it felt like every year Sorkin would consciously write an Emmy episode for a different character, right? Yes, like you have yes, Celsius Theo yes. for Toby, yeah, then yeah. you have like Noel, um, yeah. Noel, and then John Spencer has his, was mm-hmm. it Barla for America? Like it feels mm-hmm. like that, that was a very conscious choice and those episodes are all astounding. But I have a personal love for some okay. of just the like the mid-season episodes that were allowed to be a little bit looser and sillier. And I think that Sorkin's comedy is really underrated Mm -hmm. and was kind of at its peak in these early seasons. So my all-time favorite West Wing episode is Celestial Navigation, which I just think is an incredible episode of TV. It starts off in a really benign way. Josh is giving a talk, and then you find out that everything that could possibly go wrong at the White House is going wrong. And it all, it does what I think Sorkin does best, which is at the end, like every storyline just kind of builds onto each other and intersects in a really surprising way. Um, And it also does one of my favorite things, which is that this show in 
minutes previously on sometimes if there wasn't any really relevant information it would do this thing where it would just have each character kind say of say names. what it is they do and I just loved it it's brilliant and I always get excited when an episode has that so it's one of my favorites for that and then I also love um, I always love the big block of cheese day episodes in particular, somebody's going to emergency, somebody's going to jail um, because that has like this whole like CJ with the flat earther, with the, you know, the different maps and all of that. And just the cartographers to- for yes, the cartographers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it has like a great, like Toby CJ flirtation moment, which is like something that I very intensely shipped all along. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And then Galileo okay. is also a classic and I think has one of the best teasers of, for a TV episode of all time. Yeah, you're not, you're, you're not going to do better than the teaser for Galileo where Sam just like off the cuff just makes you want to fly into space. And then the intro music <laughs> yeah. swells like <laughs> WG Snuffy Walden is just doing his thing and you're just like, yes, like this yep. is America and writing <laughs> and everything is possible. <laughs> The thing, you know, you bring up Celestial Navigation, which is also the first sort of fractured narrative episode that he had done, mm-hmm. where he sort of jumps around in a timeline, which he's afforded the opportunity of because uh, Josh is giving this speech, so he can kind of jump around in time and tell people the story. And we keep kind of looping back to him in front of this uh, group of students. Um, you know, it's got it's got one of the best titles too. Sorkin's titles always have sort of a meaning, but that this is that Toby and Sam got lost because Sam was using celestial navigation to get <laughs> it turned out to, to be go. like the Delta shuttle. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just I, it's just great. Yeah, it's brilliant. I also think this show is one of the first where I really paid attention to the episode titles. Like they make a mm-hmm. whole deal of you know, after the highlighting them. Yeah. Yeah. They highlight them. They get their own title card. And I don't know if you ever went through this phase, but do you remember the website Sporkle? No, I don't know Sporkle. Oh my God. When I was in college, Sporkle was like a big thing and it was basically a huge quiz database. Okay. And they used to have quizzes of just like, can you name every episode of a TV show? And like, I would just delight myself by like filling in all of the West Wing TV episodes because they're so memorable and they're so vivid and they're all these like interesting words and concepts Mm -hmm. that clearly rattled around Sorkin's brain that I, I just feel like it's a weird insight into how he thinks. I, I I absolutely agree. I also think, you know, as a TV writer, uh, you know that titling your episode is like a thing. And it's you you want it to it very infrequently you're gonna work on a show that actually allows it to get like a title card. So it's really just gonna be seen on Hulu or whatever streaming service you see it as you yeah. hit play. Uh but it it's yeah, it's it's a thing that it's the first show I ever acknowledged as having titles. Um and then from that point on, I really always sort of tried to unpack like why the episode was called that. So yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's made me a better writer in a weird way. So, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> something. But yeah, I mean, I think that, I, I mean, I, I think that uh, somebody's going to uh, the hospital, somebody's going to jail is a beautifully shot episode too. I mean, Jessica yes. you who, who directed that episode is uh, just a, it's a stunning episode to look at. Um, and it's, and it's a, it's a Sam Seaborn backstory episode. We get to learn a lot about his dysfunctional relationship with his father. <laughs> A favorite theme. (laughs) I guess he and Mallory did have a lot in common after all. (laughs) Apparently. Apparently. Um, Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me and Jamie about this episode. I really appreciate it. This was delightful. Thank you for letting me ramble. (laughs) <laughs> Wait, are you kidding? That's this is that's what this is for. Um, and I want to bring you back to ramble about other television uh, shows as we as I continue down this road. So I really yes, appreciate and it. 
maybe a hint as to what it is. It's some dancing babies. Who's to say? Dancing babies. Uh, yes, perhaps. <laughs> also, I mean, I believe that you you mentioned a bunch of different TV shows, but Ally McBeal was one of them that you wanted to talk about as well. Um, but was Dawson's Creek another one or am I making that up? Was that another you show? Know, you know, I was not a Dawson's Creek person. Were you a WB person? Were you I watching was WB? WB? And I'm actually dealing right now with my, um, my boyfriend's 13-year-old daughter and 14-year-old niece are here and I've been hosting them for a week. They're here for another week so i keep like he's always mystified as to like how i get along with them so well and i'm like well they're actual teens and i'm an eternal teen of the wb so it all works out it all works out what what was your favorite if i could ask your favorite wb show um buffy always and buffy and angel are like will forever just shape my personality but i was weirdly very into charmed like i loved charmed and right. it's, you know, it's one that I don't remember quite as well because it was very, you know, it's so, it's so interesting with these episodes that these seasons that have like 25 episodes it's and insane. there were so yeah. many just cases. <laughs> so I don't have like the same really detailed memory for them, but I don't know why there's three sisters. I, I guess I just wanted to be a witch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who doesn't really? I mean, simplest explanation I can come up with. <laughs> it's it is amazing those WB shows. I have to say, I mean, obviously, I, I did a, a miniseries on Felicity's run in '99, which mm-hmm. was uh, which was a lot of fun to do and to sort of go back into that. It was right during the pandemic as well, so the just the the the, the, the comfort, warm sweaters, yeah. the comforts of uh, of the WB at the time. But you know, to have Dawson's Creek and Buffy and Felicity and Gilmore Girls, and I mean, it's just like the list goes on and on of these really really good shows that somehow made all of these episodes, it would make 22, 24, 26 episodes. It's mind-boggling to me. I mean, it just doesn't exist anymore. So, I mean, we should just... Yeah. Uh, it's great that they're on Hulu. But uh, Well, more than anything, thank you so, so much for coming on to talk with me about this episode. And I look forward to talking about Ally McBeal with you very soon. Amazing. Thank you so much. One last thing, please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, Speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Also, please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's. Thank you to Ernie and Will for producing our episode, Sullivan for our social media, Yonkatas for our artwork and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. Thank you. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.